Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Welcome to That's a Hard No, the podcast about saying no and setting boundaries so you can become the authentic and empowered you that this world needs. I'm Heather Drago. This conversation may include some tough topics. If you notice the podcast triggering some big feelings, remember, you can always press pause and come back to it when you're ready. Also, I encourage you to visit our website, hardnopodcast.com, for mental health resources and other helpful links. So you may have noticed my partner, the amazing Sarah Saunders, is not joining us for this episode as she has just welcomed baby number four, the adorable baby Noah. Congratulations, Sarah and Justin. We're so happy for you. He is just so beautiful. Don't worry, though. Sarah will be back next week. In the meantime, I'm lucky to have two incredible guests joining me today. Taylor Ucker-Lauterman and Caitlin Burke of OAESV the Ohio Alliance to End Sexual Violence. Full disclosure, OAESV is a client of Clever Girl Marketing. We've worked with them for years on prevention campaigns and on their websites. I've wanted to have them on That's a Hard No from the very beginning, so I'm so excited to finally have this important conversation with Taylor and Caitlin and for you to learn about the important work they do. So hello, Taylor and Caitlin. Thanks so much for coming on the podcast. Hi. Thanks for having us. Thank you. So how about if we get started by telling our listeners about what OAESV does and who you serve? Yeah, so we are the federally designated uh, sexual violence coalition. Every state and territory has a coalition. And our main role is to provide anything necessary for local rape crisis centers to do the best work possible. And so a lot of what we do is training and technical assistance. And our main audience are, for Ohio, the local rape crisis centers, their staff, um, both advocacy, prevention, policy, anybody. And you also advocate at the state and federal level, right? Yeah, we work on public policy at the state and federal level to make sure that um, we can fight for the policies that are going to support survivors and the people that serve them. Awesome. So one of the reasons I wanted to have you on is that in my mind, if we're talking about setting boundaries, then the topic of consent is just a natural fit and something that's important to talk about. 
And I know for younger people, especially those newly negotiating like romance and intimacy or just setting boundaries in general, establishing consent can be scary and uncomfortable. So let's start there. How do we create uh, and breach the subject of consent within our romantic and other relationships? Yeah, so consent is really important. And I think the first important thing to understand about consent is that it only works when everybody involved is willing to make it work. So when it comes to sexual violence, this often happens because of some unwanted sexual act that happens without another person's consent or their permission. And so in that case, one person might've wanted to give consent, the other person did not. So in that case, it didn't work. Um, But it is important that we have conversations with young people about what healthy relationships look like, including what consent looks like. Because I think it's easy for us to say that you should have it and that you should get it. But in reality, like you mentioned, it's not as easy as just asking for it because it can be a little uncomfortable. Um, So that's one of the things that you'll see a lot of prevention programs within rape crisis centers doing is having real conversations with young people about what consent really looks like. And so that doesn't just have to happen when you're talking about dating either. Ideally, we would be having conversations about consent as early as possible. So even when you're thinking about really young kids, where we are often comfortable saying like, oh, give your aunt or uncle a kiss or a hug. But sometimes kids just aren't comfortable with that. Sometimes they don't want to. Maybe this is someone that they don't really know that well. And that's an aspect of consent or permission that we don't often talk about. But that's a really easy way to begin that conversation. Mm -hmm. So then hopefully by the time someone gets to high school or starts dating, Mm -hmm. it's not as weird or uncomfortable. And so you mentioned early childhood. When should we be having conversations with kids and with teens? And like, what is the value in discussing this early on? Yeah, I think there are completely developmentally appropriate ways to be talking about this because it's all about your own body and what you're comfortable with and different boundaries. And so we can talk to young kids about, Mm -hmm. well, maybe there's different people that you would feel comfortable with, like your parent or your guardian, maybe your siblings or your best friend. You're okay with them being a little bit closer to you physically, even emotionally as well. But maybe like your teacher, maybe your neighbor, maybe this family member that you don't see a lot, you're not as comfortable and that's okay. And so there's ways that we can change the language where consent doesn't just have to be about sexual activity. It can be just about what you're comfortable with on a daily basis and that that can change, that you can always change what you're comfortable with. Mm -hmm. It's important that you feel like you can talk about that with the people around you. And, you know, once you get into you know, middle school where you're having more school-based relationships, you're having different kinds of friendships, you can change the conversation. Maybe when when students are a little bit older, um, they start getting interested in dating. That's when you can have more mm-hmm. explicit conversations about what does this look like in a dating relationship. But there's ways that you can change that conversation to make it appropriate for the age range. So I've I've brought this up before in on the podcast, so I hope I'm not shocking you too much. I think you both know this already, but I am a survivor of childhood sexual abuse. And in my case, I don't think my mother ever had any idea that it needed to be discussed with me. It never, in her wildest imagination, did she think someone would 
touch me inappropriately like that. And so it never came up. There was never a discussion. And then when it did happen to me, I didn't know that that was a thing. I thought it was just me, right? And I'm sure there are many, many people who can say they have this similar experience. So I really appreciate you talking about it early on. Um, and I know it's uncomfortable. I mean, there are a lot of adults who are uncomfortable talking about boundaries and consent for themselves. So I can only imagine, I mean, I've had conversations with my kids, but I was, because of my experience, adamant that they were not going to have a similar experience. But I know for other people where this is just not in their frame of reference, it's really hard to start that conversation. So I know we can talk about it in generalities here. Are there places where people can look for guidance on how to talk to their kids about these kinds of things? Caitlin, maybe you have some specifics in response to the question of where people can go. Um, but thankfully, this is a conversation that's happening a lot more now. You can even find suggestions of how to talk to your kids on TikTok mm -hmm. and Instagram. You know, there are influencers that are that are having these conversations and are encouraging it because we do get a lot of that pushback. Like one of the things that we're working on at OAESV is Aaron's Law. It's age appropriate. Um anti-sexual violence education. So for each age group, there would be different types of content, right? Mm -hmm. But a lot of people want to push back against that and say, like, some kids are just too young to talk about this. Mm -hmm. And we don't want to expose them to this and whatnot. But the reality is kids don't have that privilege. They are exposed to violence. They are mm -hmm. probably already experiencing some level of their boundaries being breached. And to pretend that that's not happening in the world is doing them a disservice. It's going to be a lot more helpful for us to talk to them. And we don't have to make it scary. Or sexual. Right. It, exactly. There's mm -hmm. so many ways that we can talk about it. So, mm -hmm. Yeah. I love the idea of just kind of doing a Google search because that's going to be the most up-to-date. You know, we can give you like an organization name, but I do think there's value in looking at mm -hmm. what young people are talking about themselves because, you know, there's going to be television shows or songs that come up that are related to dating or consent or boundaries. And as a parent, it's important that maybe you're tuned into that as much as you can. That's a really good point. Yeah, I think that's a great place to start. Um, I also want to mention that specifically when we're talking about childhood abuse prevention, it's really important that we don't just focus on kids and their role in preventing it. Because oftentimes what we're talking about is kids aren't going to talk about something until it's already happened. And so in that case, we're not really preventing it. We're just reacting. Yeah, we're reacting. We're making sure that they're supported, but we didn't actually prevent something from happening um, to that child. We might be preventing something to future children, and that's great. But I do see that within the child sexual abuse movement, there's a big focus on having parents and guardians know the warning signs of what are potentially harmful behaviors and how to ensure that your kid is staying safe and is around safe people. And so while talking to kids about consent is really important, it's also very difficult for a small child to assert their boundaries with an adult. Mm -hmm. And so it really has to be kind of a, a multi-level process that we're doing. And that that's not just for children, that's also for adolescents. It's also for adults. When we're thinking about the work that we do at OASV, but also in the larger movement, we're not just doing one thing at a time. We're doing multiple things at once so that hopefully we're increasing that net to reach more people, but also make sure that like if something doesn't work, 
we have another strategy that we're doing at the same time to kind of make sure that we really are filtering out the amount of violence that's really happening. In my experience working with you, I've helped with your Be The One campaign, which speaks specifically to teens and tweens about being the person who steps in to help prevent a situation. And and in that campaign, if I recall correctly, you talked about gateway behaviors that are kind of like warning signs or things that start pushing boundaries that can lead to sexual violence, like bullying and cyber bullying and Mm -hmm. lots of things. Um, Can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah, there's a lot of research that supports bullying as a precursor to dating violence or sexual violence. Mm. And so that means that those anti-bullying programs that we do see Mm -hmm. are often really very important because that can reduce a lot of the dating violence that happens or violence that happens between adolescents. Mm -hmm. But in general, we know that violence is supported by a lot of small behaviors that are often ignored or minimized or even built into our culture. Mm -hmm. And so not just thinking about what happens to children or adolescents, but violence in general is supported by our culture. It's ingrained into things like our justice system, our medical system, where we see biases against people of different backgrounds, like racial differences or against immigrants, for example, We also see within our own policies, either in our workplace or our schools or even our federal policies are not built to be supportive. Mm -hmm. Right. And so, yeah. So when we when we kind of ignore or minimize these what are considered smaller behaviors like jokes, it could be sexual jokes, it could be racial jokes, it could be homophobic remarks. When those smaller things are ignored by a larger society, they make it more acceptable. Yeah, acceptable for more dangerous behaviors to happen. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I also feel like just as a parent at different functions, softball, soccer, you know, school events, community events, you see something and there's this need for us all to be so polite. So like this politeness or this mm-hmm. social lubrication to make sure we all get along. It actually isn't kind in any way because it's just letting things slide that hurt someone. And I know it's we're all so afraid to cause that friction and set those boundaries, but then someone gets hurt, either emotionally or otherwise. So, you know, for all of us recovering people pleasers, it's a good lesson to think about or it's a it's important to to realize that by being nice, you're not being kind. And you'll see too, like we have institutionalized in so many ways violence, but we have yet to institutionalize prevention of violence or even supporting each other against it. And that's what I would love to see. Like if you look at even just the media and movies, you are way more likely to see an example of an unhealthy relationship and lack of consent and lack of boundaries than you are to see examples of what could be a healthy relationship and and good patterns to follow. So of course, we're going to pick up on the harmful patterns instead. Let's talk about responding to those who are coming at us trying to cross boundaries. How do we, how do we stand up for ourselves and set those boundaries? And then, you know, at the same time, minimize backlash or, you know, make sure it lands in a way that it's heard. Good question. And when you said like, backlash as well. That's a reality too. So if we're talking about people who 
are marginalized by our system. So women, people of color, trans people, people with disabilities, setting their boundaries, asserting their boundaries, pushing back in any way is likely to result in some sort of a backlash in response. So I don't want us to have this conversation without acknowledging that as well. Mm -hmm. Um, So it makes me think about the importance of people thinking about their own safety and making those decisions for themselves of how they can approach it. And it takes me back as well to just the example of like seeing many different examples online, thankfully, of people teaching ways to do this and having those examples and suggestions come from people that maybe have similar identities or could understand like what you maybe are going through and experiencing and like what a situation might be like for you. So yeah, I don't know if there's one size fits all and I would love to hear what Caitlin has to say, but right. Yeah. Yeah. I was thinking similar. It's all about context. And I think sometimes you're not going to be able to, Mm. and like, that's okay too. Whether you're thinking about sexual violence or you're thinking about other forms of hate or oppression in our culture, sometimes you can't assert your boundaries in that moment because you are the one who's being harmed and like, that's fine. And so I think that that's where it comes in, where we have to make sure that we have communities that care for each other so that if you do find yourself in a situation where you just were not able to assert your boundaries for whatever reason, you can still get support. And also at the same time, the person who was causing the harm also get some accountability from people who care about them and say like, what you did was not okay. Mm -hmm. And, you know, we know that you can do better and let's work together to do that. And we don't often see that happen. And so, yeah, I think there's value in like making sure that, you know, we reflect individually what we're comfortable with and what we're not comfortable with, especially if we're thinking about like intimate relationships Mm -hmm. and just practicing saying words out loud can really be helpful. Um, especially with young kids, making sure that kids know like the real names for body parts so that in case something does happen, it can be more clear what, what did happen. And it's important to, I think, practice that within other types of relationships. It could be within your friendship. Like I know lots of friendships that I've had where we're just different people and maybe your friend crosses a boundary. Like they tell a story about you that you didn't want to be told. And so that's another opportunity where you can practice Mm -hmm. letting them know like that was not cool. You knew that that was like something that I didn't want to talk about, but you went ahead and did it anyway. So I think that practicing it like that and less um, maybe intense circumstances can help people feel more empowered, but ultimately asserting your boundaries is it going to be the, you know, the one thing that prevents sexual violence or any kind of violence from happening? Right. There has to be a larger response to. Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. I think a lot of times too, in some of these really sticky intimate situations, boundaries may be defined, but then there's like this encroachment that happens. It's like testing of boundaries. Well, okay, well, can I do this? Mm-hmm. And, can, mm-hmm. and it's really uncomfortable, especially for young women who are, mm-hmm. you know, told to always say yes and be subservient. And, you know, our culture historically has taught us all to be nice and polite and Right. Say yes. So, so um, it's really tough. It's really hard. And I guess it's that understand you have a right to your autonomy and to speak up when you're uncomfortable. So on that note, we're going to take a quick break and we'll be right back. That's a hard note is brought to you by Clever Girl Marketing, my full service agency specializing in smart strategic marketing solutions for businesses and nonprofits. Okay, so you're probably wondering, Heather, 
what's with the podcast about boundaries? Why not marketing? Well, maybe in the future, but for now, it actually does relate. So bear with me here. Smart marketing, strategic marketing, requires knowing what to say no to and why. Businesses and nonprofits get inundated with marketing options and offers every day. We help you cut through all that noise, focus on your specific needs, and develop actionable strategies that are doable and actually make sense. Whether it's websites, SEO, email, social, or traditional channels, we're experienced in all of it. So if you need help figuring out your marketing, visit our website, clevergrowmarketing.com, and get in touch. Hi, my name is Sarah, and I want to tell you about my podcast called Can I offer you some feedback? I'm a business consultant and executive coach with over 20 years experience in change management, leadership development, and naturally providing feedback to high performers. My podcast is for those of you who have a complicated relationship with feedback, whether giving, receiving, avoiding, or seeking. Feedback is essential for our development. In each episode, you'll hear from real people across industries with their ideas, perspectives, and best practices on feedback. I'll also be sharing business bites with you, simple explanations of organizational tools, management techniques, and leadership philosophies that will help you and your businesses thrive. You can listen to Can I Offer You Some Feedback on your favorite podcast app or learn more at evergreenpodcasts.com. And we're back. So Taylor, what do you think about my encroachment? <laughs> yeah, well, it just makes me think about the fact that like what we're talking about here is interpersonal examples mm-hmm. of things that we can do. And those are really important. Yes. But Caitlin mentioned, you know, a larger response because what really needs to happen is anti-oppression work, right? We have to change this way of thinking and these structures at the larger level. And then it will be much easier for us to deal with these things in an interpersonal way. Because like you said, girls and women are often taught to be subservient. Mm -hmm. We're taught to like be talked into things and, oh, well, maybe I'm wrong about what my boundaries are. Like maybe I do need to just relax and chill out because that comes from the gendered oppression, right? And gendered stereotypes. So even in that example, let's say the other person is a man. He's taught that he can do that, that he should do that, that she's wrong and he's probably right. And he should take more power in the situation and convince her of this. But if we weren't teaching people that to begin with, we probably wouldn't have this in, this one interpersonal situation. Mm-hmm. So I think that's really important. Or people would feel empowered to say no and not be afraid. Yeah. 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 Cause there's always going to be jerks. <laughs> right. Right. Um, so even when we get to like this perfect place that I want to be in, um, there could still be jerks. But yeah. Yeah. I mean, honestly, I'm just thinking back to my early dating period in my twenties. I mean, th- sometimes they're not jerks about it. They're just, you know, but I love you and I, you know, don't you love me? And it's, you know, a lot of guilt trip stuff and, that happens in all kinds of relationships, friendship levels. You know, I want to go do something. I want to go out to dinner. Well, I'm not comfortable going out to dinner. I think a lot of us are afraid to just feel empowered to control our own destinies. Mm-hmm. And that's an important point too, Heather. Like it doesn't have to be this like demonic other person that has bad intentions and that right. that idea of like someone who's harming you always being this person that you are Mm -hmm. terrified of and you hate them that that doesn't necessarily get us anywhere Mm -hmm. so I like that you acknowledge that 
sometimes it's good intentions and people care about each other and still can have a bad impact. I think that brings up another point that in a majority of sexual violence cases, the survivor knew the person who harmed them. And so mm-hmm. that just adds a layer of like, well, I know this person, I still like them or I still am going to see them. How can I like say no without ruining the relationship? But I really don't want this to happen. So it's just like a lot of like a lot of extra uncertainty about the entire situation, like what's actually happening. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's that uncomfortable. I'm going to talk about this a little later, but I feel like we are so not prepared or taught to set boundaries as individuals that that moment of confrontation when you're just like, I really don't want to do this. We're not prepared as people to say no. And I think we're also not prepared or or maybe we're just also exhausted and stuck in our own lives, you know, putting food on the table and doing stuff that we don't stand up when we don't like something in society. And you know, you mentioned all these different ways people are oppressed or hurt or targeted. And I know I care about all that stuff, but do I really do enough to stop it? You know, um, so it's one of those things of how prepared are we to to stand up for ourselves or others? Mm-hmm. A great opportunity to plug one of our campaigns, Embrace Your Voice, because that's what it's about is having these conversations, hearing more about the realistic situations. If we just base our idea of sexual violence on like Lifetime movies, it's not realistic to what most people are going through. And if we aren't talking about the reality, then it's not applicable to people and we're not going to make really that much of a difference. So absolutely like talking about these things more. I mean, we all saw the impact of Me Too. Even just people saying, yes, this thing has happened to me Mm -hmm. is so powerful. And then to be able to talk about okay, well, what did happen? And how can we address the reality of what happened and recognizing that you're not alone? And then we can get to that point of, okay, well, what could have been done differently? Mm -hmm. What are those scripts I can prepare and practice in my head? So speaking about prevention, then we talked about a number of things, but what what are some steps individuals can take, like kind of in the larger scale to help with prevention? And is prevention even a realistic expectation. Yes, it is realistic. <laughs> and I'm, I'm not just saying that because I my career is in prevention. I truly believe it's possible because we're not grasping at straws. We have real examples of how violence has been decreased or eliminated. And so when it comes to prevention, you know, unfortunately, like we've talked about, it's not just like a one size fits all thing or one strategy isn't going to be enough. So we have to look at a spectrum of activities, a whole bunch of strategies that we can implement at the same time. And so there's a couple different um, strategies that that we know about. So we often see prevention within a public health frame. We know that sexual violence is a public health concern. It affects millions of people within our population. And so we rely on public health knowledge and frameworks and data to inform these strategies that we're trying to implement. So you'll see like at the individual level, we can talk to people about healthy relationships. We can talk about how can we be a healthy partner? What are some of the red flags that we should look out for? At the same time, how can we ensure that our community, so that could either be like your school community, it could be where you live, it could be where you work, however you define it. How can we make it so that this is a really supportive, healthy 
environment. So what are those social norms, those kind of unspoken social rules that we follow? We can also look at relationships, right? So we can look at adults who work with youth. So that's an opportunity for us to talk with teachers, with coaches, with parents or guardians. Like we mentioned before, talking with your young people about healthy relationships. Mm -hmm. What is consent? What are your experiences with relationships and how difficult was it for you? And like, how can we learn from each other? And also as an adult, how can I pick up on those red flags that are happening? Along with that, those individual strategies and steps we can take need to be supported by our environment. So that's where we start to see the really key point of policy. And so we want to make sure that our schools, for example, have a clear policy for what if a student is assaulted? How do we handle that? How do we make sure that they get the support that they need to the, so that they can continue in school? How do we ensure as a school that our students feel safe when they come in and they don't feel monitored or they don't feel like they're mm -hmm. being told that they're doing something wrong all the time? How can they truly learn? Mm -hmm. And then also our workplaces. How can we make sure that our um, colleagues and employees feel safe and supported while they're working? How can we make sure that they're super productive? Um, and if they are assaulted, how can we make sure that they can still get paid if they have to go to court? if they have to go to the hospital, if they have to take some time off because they've experienced trauma. And then all of that needs to be supported by our larger society at whole, where we're not tolerating the jokes. We're not tolerating the minimization of violence. Mm -hmm. We are addressing things like white supremacy and how has that influenced our culture and how is that related to violence and ensuring that our federal government has policies that allow for research to be done on violence, allow dollars to go directly into the communities that are experiencing violence, and ensuring that our federal laws and policies are supportive of survivors as well. So it's a large spectrum. We have to do all this at the same time in order for us to really catch mm -hmm. violence and make sure that our future generations don't experience it or at least experience it a lot less. Um, sorry. <laughs> That was really profound. I'm like sinking in. <laughs> um, Just a little bit of stuff. <laughs> it's, it's, you know, you guys do such amazing work that like the breadth of what you know is amazing to me. So let's talk about, we've talked about prevention, but let's talk about the harsh reality of like, you know, if someone is a survivor of sexual violence, like, can you give us best practices for supporting someone may, who may have endured a traumatic experience? How can we step up for them? There are a few things that people can do. And I will say too, this is one of the topics that we broach on our blog, on our website. Mm -hmm. um, so there's like a, a short blog there with, with just a few things that are a little easier to take in because I know that this subject can be overwhelming. We want to support people. We don't want to say the wrong thing um, or cause them any more harm. And sometimes that is what happens when somebody discloses their story. Mm -hmm. So one of the first things to do is just like listen. I know that seems really simple, but that really is a lot of it. For somebody to get the courage to talk about what has happened to them, tell somebody else about it is monumental. So many people go their entire lives without telling anybody about what has happened to them. So to listen and feel honored, really, that they're sharing that with you is important to not question what they're saying. Um, there are questions you could ask, like, 
what do you think could be helpful right now? Like, what can I do for you that might help you? Um, how do you want to be supported? But asking them questions about their story, like, well, what happened at this point? Or uh, why were you there? Or, well, you said this thing happened, but but then you said this happened and that didn't make sense. Like those types of questions are not helpful and will make somebody just feel like you don't believe them because maybe you don't. And that is not what you want to, to communicate to them. When people are in trauma, things may not make sense the way that they are explaining them. And that is not what matters in that moment. Um, what matters is just being there for them and supporting them. So listen to them, believe them um, without questioning their story. Don't pretend to understand. Saying, actually, I understand is usually not helpful to people. Um, a better response could be, that makes sense. Or, I can see why you would feel that way. Or, I'm feeling that way with you. Or, I can resonate with that. But no one's ever going to understand someone else's experience. I think just knowing the local resources as well, so that you know where to turn to, or at least you know like how to Google it and find the information. You can also offer to go with the person to the crisis center or um, to the counselor if they want and just sit outside. So I think it's helpful to just have a basic understanding as well of like, you know, we're not expecting people to be counselors themselves. So you, there is probably going to come a point where you're just, you're not going to be able to provide any other support. And so if that time comes, knowing maybe where you can direct them to could also be really helpful. It sounds like just being there, being supportive, just I'm here for you, whether you have answers or not, just to be there for them and listen. That's what's important. Yeah. And I'm glad you said that, too, because sometimes people don't want answers. Right. They're not maybe telling you for you to solve the issue and for, for people to like jump in and try to like, OK, well, here's what we can do about it. Sort of like solution oriented thing is often not helpful. Mm -hmm. A lot of times mm -hmm. they just want to talk. They want to get it out, get it off their chest. And um, that can just be a great starting point. So, yeah, I'm glad you, glad you addressed that. Mm -hmm. The reality is that we all know somebody Right. Already that has gone through it, whether you know it specifically or not. So like having this information is sadly probably going to be useful at some point in your life. Yeah. I mean, it's something like, am I right? One in five women? One in four. One in four? And like one in six men or? Yeah, it's like one in six to one in 10. The numbers yeah. um, kind of go yeah. across. So, but. I mean, it can affect anyone. Um yeah. At any age, honestly. Um, mm -hmm. yeah. And then, unfortunately, you know, there's some people who are survivors and have never gotten help um, or haven't spoken about it. Do you have any advice or tips for people who, you know, have experienced something and, and haven't gotten any support to date? Well, the first thing that comes to mind also is, like, we put, as a, as a culture, we put a lot of pressure on people disclosing things that have happened to them. And I just want people to know that like, you don't have to. Right. That's important. Everyone's always like, oh, you know, reporting numbers are low. And that's important to talk about because we want to make sure that if people want support, the type of support that they want is there. And we know that right now it's not for a lot of people. So we do need to do better. And so knowing how many people maybe are talking about it versus not is important. However, I don't ever want anybody to think that like, that's the only way to like heal or move forward in life. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. But I hope that 
there is some sort of support that could be helpful to people. So if they are feeling um, up to it, they could, yeah, look into local resources around them. Like in Ohio, we do list all of the local rape crisis centers on our website at oaesv.org slash map. But also kind of like we've, we've been saying this whole time, there are thankfully so many resources now online mm-hmm. and you can find people that maybe are like you and have like a support group type um, situation where a safe space. Yeah, absolutely. Mm-hmm. And I know I've seen it in the comment sections on like videos on TikTok, just knowing um, other people's experience. So if you can, and if you want to, like hear from other people and talk to them. It doesn't have to be in like a clinical way um, Mm -hmm. or it could be if that's what you want, but there are a lot of different options now and even the most casual options can be helpful. Mm -hmm. I think it's important to know also that each state has different statute of limitations or like the time that someone can come forward if they're wanting to say that something happened and go through the criminal justice system Again, a lot of survivors will not, and that's perfectly fine. But you would have to know in your state how long after this occurred can you report it to the police. For example, in Ohio, we're currently working to support a bill that would eliminate the statute of limitations for, I think, rape specifically, so that no matter how long it's been, someone can still come forward and say, this happened to me. I would like to report this crime. So each state is different. That's important to note. These things like like anti-sexual violence work and um, preventing violence of all kinds shows up in so many different ways and so many different places and that we do have to come at it in many different directions. So there are, for example, like I forget the, the number, but there was a, a house bill that came up recently that was about... Um, restricting abortion and they did not have exemptions for rape and incest. And so like, we don't speak a lot on like abortion and reproductive rights, but when it comes to not having exemptions for rape and incest, that is really important to us and important to survivors. So you can see like that crossover and thinking about the importance of voting for your representatives, paying attention to the things that they are, um, proposing. Mm -hmm. We have a governor's race this year. So thinking about that Mm -hmm. and then coming back even to healthy workplaces and how Mm -hmm. having healthy workplaces and respecting each other's boundaries leads right up to preventing violence. Mm -hmm. So Mm -hmm. it can be tough to think about, oh, everything I do matters, but it does. Mm -hmm. Like the, the little things are actually the ways that we can make a big difference in the world and in our world, in our community, even just here in Ohio or even smaller than that. So yeah, I just want to reiterate that it's, it's the little things. It's not always making a big show, right? Right. I mean, if you're listening to this podcast, you probably do care, but you might not actually care about sexual violence as much as we do. And like, that's fine because we know that a lot of violence and trauma is connected And so maybe you're interested in the gun violence that's happening in your community. Maybe you're interested in reducing the poverty rate in your community. Maybe you're interested in your kid's soccer team. You know, like it could be whatever you're interested in. If you're working to make sure that you are making your community better and thriving, then you're going to be reducing violence at the same time, including sexual violence. And so even if it's uncomfortable for you to speak out against sexual violence specifically, 
you can still make a difference by those things that you are interested in because it's really all connected. Community. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Just care Absolutely. about each other. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. We That's all right. want a safe community. That's right. And I think that we would be remiss to not mention the shooting that happened this weekend. Yeah. That was based on racism. Yeah. And heartbreaking and infuriating. It is. Yeah. It's awful. And that's the tip of the iceberg type of violence that we're talking about. And if we want to stop that, we have to talk about all these other types of of violence down here under the surface of the water. Right. Right. Any level of violence that's accepted just lends to more violence. We we can't just rely on those who are directly affected to speak up. We we who are witnessing this happening have to also raise our voices and say like this is not okay and we don't have to live like this and so yeah i mean that's what we've seen in the sexual violence movement a lot of survivors are doing this work and so yeah same thing with racial violence it cannot just be the folks who are experiencing it directly who tell us this is a problem we have to see it ourselves and do something about it in those big and small ways yeah yeah Absolutely. Mm -hmm. Well, thank you so much, both of you, Taylor and Caitlin, for all your time and your expertise. OAESV is such an important organization. I really appreciate what you do. How can other people find and support you? On our website, we have all kinds of information for people, um, whether they're survivors or co-survivors, but also ways that people can get involved. So that's oaesv.org. And um, you can also go to oaesv.org slash get hyphen involved specifically, and that'll have our donation page, which is a great way to support us, but also ways for folks to like volunteer. Um, We also post when we have job openings, but also when we have openings in organizations similar to ours. So if you want to like get involved in that way, that's awesome. We always need more people doing the work and kind of like how we work with you, Heather, folks who have skills to offer that want to collaborate with us. We always need all kinds of different work done. So like, let's work together as well. If you have um, something that you can offer that would help us get our work out there even more. Fantastic. And you're on social media. Absolutely. Right. Of course. Taylor. We're not on TikTok, but. (laughs) (laughs) You're not doing any dances on TikTok. (laughs) Not yet. Not yet. (laughs) All right. Well, thank you again so much for your time and for all that you do. I really appreciate thank you. it. Thank and I want to say thank you, Heather, for your support always in our work. Oh. Um, it's great working with you, but it's great to have your support too. And I want to thank you too for sharing a little bit of your story because like oh, I said, thanks. that's really important. So thank you. a boundary, saying no, can feel incredibly awkward and uncomfortable, especially in intimate situations or with someone you care about. If you feel awkward when saying no, if you're stumbling or uncomfortable, that's actually good. It means you're learning and growing. Embrace that feeling and pay attention. It takes practice And it also takes understanding that you are worthy of determining your own fate and that you have the right to say no, regardless of how that makes others feel.
So I want you to go back to basics. If you still feel uncomfortable setting boundaries, I want you to start finding one thing every day to say no to. Look for opportunities, big or small. Consider it a win for the day when you do it. Keep score. We have a score sheet on our resources page you can use and keep track of how you feel. I promise the more you do it, the easier it will get. And if you're in a situation or with a person with whom you don't feel safe saying no, know that there are people ready and able to support you. We'll put links to some of those resources, including OAESV, on our show notes page. And you can also reach out to me and Sarah via our website or social media. What questions do you have about setting boundaries? We want to show up for you. We're listening. Let us know what topics you want to talk about. Send us your questions, especially for Sarah, because she's so fantastic and has such great insights. If you've got a great no story to tell, we want to hear it. Message us on our social channels or send us an email through our website. So that's it for today. Thank you so much for listening. Visit our website, hardnopodcast.com, for this episode's show notes, past episodes, downloadables, and links to resources. Also, you'll find links to each of our websites, Clever Girl Marketing and PurposefulGrowthAndWellness.com. Make sure to follow and get in touch with us on social. We're Hard No Podcast on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. And please, I'm going to ask you to do me a huge favor. If you're enjoying this podcast, please share your favorite episode with one person, someone you think might also enjoy it or could benefit from our conversations about boundaries. Thanks to our friends and families, our villagers, for listening and for your continued support. That's a Hard No is a joint production of Clever Girl Marketing and Purposeful Growth and Wellness. Marketing and Production Coordinator, Mara Del Rosario. Production Support, Evergreen Podcast, Noah Fouts, Producer. Music by Gigi Riggs. Until next time, thanks for listening. And remember, saying no isn't just okay. Saying no is the key to living an authentic, fulfilling life. So do it. Find your no, then say it unapologetically. That's a hard no. Welcome to the Bravery Academy. My name is Emma Ferris and I'm your host. This podcast is crafted to share the stories of courageous individuals who've overcome adversity and found the courage to live their best lives. We'll explore the science of well-being, courage and connection and interview top thought leaders, game changers and survivors. And it's from these stories that we learn what resilience is, how to heal, how to recover and how to be brave.